This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momenta Partners and Momenta Ventures. Welcome to our Digital Leadership Podcast. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day, and welcome to a very special edition of our Digital Leadership Podcast today, episode 100. I could not think of a better person to celebrate this than our special guest, Jeff Christian. Jeff is considered one of the top five search consultants in the world. He has generated and built over 500 million in retained search and has been named to the Forbes Midas list of the top 50 most influential deal makers for four years running. Focusing on CEO, board member, and senior level executive search and selection, his clients span high profile early stage companies to the Fortune 500, including industry stalwarts like IBM, Microsoft, Hewlett Packard, Apple, and Netscape. Jeff has literally written the best-selling book on executive search titled The Headhunter's Edge. Jeff, welcome to the Momenta Digital Industry Leadership Podcast today. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for asking me. And we're very pleased to have you. So in a first for these podcasts, I'd also like to welcome Richard White and Jonathan Moulton as well, our executive search leaders. So making this a group discussion. Richard, Jonathan. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me to participate, Ken. Looking forward to this a lot. Yeah, thanks, Ken and Jeff. Great to have you with us. So let's start off with your professional journey. We always like to have that sense of the background that got you to where you're at now and really in digital industry. So tell us a bit about your background and how it has informed your views of what we'll call. Well, thanks, Ken. Uh, I would say that my background since I've been in search for so long has been all search. I was an entrepreneur trying to start little companies while I was in college and then at 23 founded Christian and Timbers. So my background has from a very early start been about building early stage companies initially in robotics, CAD CAM and automation and then moving on into other sectors of technology. Jeff, you, you've had a, a, a storied career, obviously. Um, what were some of the most impactful placements you ever made, and, and how did you know they were the right person for the job at the time? That's a great question. I think uh, a couple of want to stick out. My first CEO searches were probably the most difficult to get. Anyone that's in search today strives to get into the C-suite, and, and it's not an easy thing to do, and it took me a number of years to move from mid-level search to VP level search and then into the executive level at the time, that's what we would call it. There was no term for C-suite. And then getting my first uh, CEO search and then my first board search were probably things that um, I can look back at as, as uh, kind of important moments in my career. The, I can't actually remember the exact search that I did that was my first CEO, but one of them was uh, GE's printer business in Waynesboro, Virginia called Genicom. And it was bought by a private equity firm. And this was way before everybody wanted to work in the private equity world. That's a, kind of one of the highly coveted areas for executive search today. And the firm was Walsh, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe. And, and they introduced me. I'd already been working with General Electric in their robotics and, and CAD-CAM areas in Schenectady, New York, in their um, R&D center. But uh, this was my first big CEO search. And then I think 
building Thermoscan, which was when uh, we had our venture firm, uh, Technology Ventures, our first one, and we were able to find that patent for a digital, the first digital thermometer in Yale Technology Park, and then bring in the CEO, the entire leadership team, uh, built the board, um, and uh, the company was sold to Thomas Lee about two and a half years after inception, and then they flipped it to Braun. We should have waited <laughs> a couple, maybe another year and sold to Braun for about, uh, I don't know, about 100 million more than what we sold it to Thomas Lee for. Jeff, you, you not only created a highly successful search practice, but, but went on to create an e equally successful venture capital practice. And, and in fact, you were an inspiration for Ken and me as we built Momenta. What inspired you to create the ventures practice? That's a great question. And I, I was wondering what inspired you guys. And I'm going to ask that question as well, because I think you're the only firm that read the book and, and saw that as something that you could do and, and may have had some importance. How we got into venture capital, and at first we weren't, we were deal makers, uh, meaning we were making introductions. Very early on, it was, I think, one of the first robotics searches that I had done. I can't even remember the name of the company, but there were a company in Princeton, New Jersey, that was a robotics firm, and they were looking to uh, raise money, and, and uh, we knew the venture folks, actually another firm in Princeton that didn't, they did not know each other. <laughs> so we made that introduction, and we got a Lehman Brothers formula, you know, the five, four, three, two, one formula uh, as a finder's fee. And we said, well, this is a pretty good deal. And and we were always talking to CEOs and board members and getting to know what was going on in the company. And then we had clients on the venture side. So those introductions became pretty easy to do. And then uh, we ran into Dental Research, which was our first big home run. And that was the first toothbrush, the Interplaque toothbrush with rotating clumps of bristles. And uh, we found an inventor in Chicago, and he had a prototype. And we, my partner and I, Steve and Seth, we ran around and raised a little seed round of about 100,000, getting checks for seven, 10, nine, whatever, from people here in Cleveland. And that allowed the company to get going. And then his dad, as they also did in Thermoscan, it was the same model, uh, his dad gave us adult supervision because, again, these are like my first uh, CEO and board searches. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, but his dad somehow did, and and John Linseth uh, instructed us, and we built the board, wrote the business plans, um, and built the leadership team, and that was sold to Teledyne about two and a half years after inception, I think for about $220 million. So those are huge home runs back then. They might be called unicorns today, talent-centric unicorns. So the concept of really understanding extraordinary leadership and being recognized for understanding extraordinary leadership, I'm not sure I ever actually really did, but I did get recognized for it. And that allowed me to get the CEO search at HP, WebMD, F5 Networks, Upwork, et cetera. Upwork is another deal, you know, where um, we, we didn't know it was going to be Upwork. It was called Elance at the time. And at, at that point, we had a $44 million fund, CT Access Ventures. And we were in the seed round. We brought in the CEO, brought in a couple of board members. We're in each round of funding until IPO. That was our, one of our last exits. That was in 2018, uh, Upwork. So we've always had that combination of recognizing, or at least being thought of as being able to recognize extraordinary leadership and being able to bring money, you know, capital, innovation, and what's most important, extraordinary leadership and talent to make a company highly successful. And we've only really done those types of deals. Um, I can tell you about another one. It was a spin out of case, maybe in a few minutes. 
You know, um, Jeff, I, I've got to jump in here because you asked the question of what inspired Jonathan and I, and I think you just did a beautiful job of describing that. It's what I'll call the meta patterns. <clears throat> One is what you are, you're in the relationship and insights business. You you develop relationships, you mind those, you have insights about those, and you do pattern matching with that, right? I remember having uh, lunch with you and your, uh, your sons uh, earlier this year, and I referred to you as an exec search professional, and you quickly corrected me and said, no, I'm a deal maker. <laughs> and that struck me. You really are, and you can apply that toward many different sectors, right? Exec search is pattern matching. Venture capital is pattern matching. Uh, M&A deal flow is pattern matching, right? And so it was that meta pattern that stuck out to us in the book probably more so than the hard lessons around just exec search or just venture capital. So, uh, yeah, well done in terms of inspiring us. So, Yeah, thank you. I think of, uh, I, I like to talk about all of us striving to be CEO whisperers, you know, those that are strategic confidants, not just strategic talent confidants. And uh, you guys know this from the training, the mentoring. Strategic talent confidant is someone that is recognized and appreciated uh, by a top leader, a decision maker, as someone that brings more than just people, you know, that someone that they can confide in about everything, about their own career. You know, every key search, there's a strategic problem. There's some strategic or tactical problem or they wouldn't be doing the search, right? And so if you're gonna do the search correctly, you really have to understand, well, if it's a you know senior vice president of marketing or what we call a CMO today, and well, you've got to get into the strategy. You have to be able to talk to the CEO about what's going on in the market. You have to be able to talk to candidates about that. So the best search guys are really those that, for whatever reason, have a combination of intuitive ability to recognize uh, leadership, recognize BS, you know, recognize when someone is not who they portray themselves to be. Um, they just have a kind of a sixth sense of who's a, who's a phenomenal leader or what I might call a transformational leader, which you call a catalytic uh, leader. Um, and there are many names for them. They're, they're, some people call them backable CEOs, um, you know, extraordinary CEOs that seem to always win no matter what. And those tells, those things to be able to recognize those, if you end up doing enough CEO searches, you end up being able to know one when you see one. And, and I, I look at the very best venture people that, have, I've, that were mentors of mine, like Vinod Kosley. Each of the years I was on, that Forbes list. He was number one and he deserved to be on the list. I think he just threw me on there because I was a novelty. I was a search guy with a venture fund and uh, and the only one at the time. I think you guys might be number two. I don't know of anyone else that's really raised a real fund and uh, is really and has a venture fund and a search firm. Maybe there's another one. But, um, but Vinod, he has an uncompromising leadership hiring model. Same thing with Bruce Rauner. Uh, Bruce is my mentor in private equity. Bruce uh, recently, uh, he was nice enough to make me one of his co-campaign managers when he ran for governor of Illinois, which he just lost to Pritzker uh, last fall. But uh, Bruce is the founder, the innovator behind the backable CEO. He's the one that gave me that name, the word backable. I need a backable CEO. That I wrote an article for PE Magazine in 2005, and now it's been distorted. But he had the real definition of one, and but he couldn't. He had the definition of what one's outcome was. He could not tell me. What were the qualities of them? I had figured that out on my own. In fact, no one in the firm was able to really give me a succinct definition. They just knew one when, when they saw one. Same thing with Vinod. He knew one when they saw one. But he has an uncompromising leadership hiring model. And plus, any investment he makes. And so the same thing's true with Ann Wimblatt, Amber Wimblatt, extraordinarily successful. Is that she says the most important thing 
for a board member is the firing and hiring of a CEO. And both of them have the ability to fire any CEO. They put it in the contract. They can replace them anytime they want if they're going to invest in, in an A round. Um, if that CEO does not turn into the kind of leader that they believe they need to be. Because some can morph and become an extraordinary leader. Others are just that way. And you, you can tell by their experience. But still, knowing one when you see one and being able to define it is difficult. But expanding upon that a little bit, Jeff, and getting getting one level deeper, you, you've heard us discuss catalytic leadership or you know, so-called turnaround leaders, as we used to refer to them at, at Patriarch Partners, my former employer. Can can you give us any specifics of of key traits that sure, you sure. look for every time, or is it is it much more a gut feeling? Well, I, I did write an article and Unscaling published it, and and a lot of other people. I think AP did, and uh, Associated Press, and and a couple others put it on, and it was called it the top ten traits of transformational CEOs. They've been transformational transformational CEO. We actually identified a sixty primary qualities, behaviors, scenario reactions, leadership models, the human characteristics, and, 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 and many other things. We've created and identified 60 primary ones, which we do keep proprietary. However, the top, I can tell you what the first one is. And, and, and I guess I, I got to define what that meant. What was a transformational CEO or a catalytic CEO? I got to define it in that article and make it mine. And I don't think anyone else has this data. And the only reason I have the data is because no one in that does assessments can get their hands on it because how are they going to get a sampling of you know 100 CEOs that they would know were extraordinary performers to even sit down and be assessed? They couldn't. First of all, they have to identify one without an assessment. Then they have to find another 99 of them or whatever their minimum requirement was to create a sampling big enough to create an assessment tool. Um, but I had the opportunity to interview um, about 40 or 50 of the highest performing CEOs in the world, which really meant at the time in the US, you know, this goes back a while before we've had many, many CEOs from Europe that have come to run companies in the United States and that we even know who those leaders are in other parts of the world. But so that was mostly in the United States. Sam Palmazano was one of my um, uh, role models. So was Paul Lini. Um, so was Lou Platt. Um, Sam, though, is probably the best. And then there are ones just like him that I've been able to identify and I've known throughout my career, and I'll explain that in a minute. And Sam was the CEO, probably the most um, heralded CEO at IBM. Turned it around, built it, grew it. And by the way, I don't think you mentioned calling it your last firm a turnaround CEO. Yes, they can be turnaround CEOs, but they can also take something that's nothing and turn it into something. You know, they, they always win no matter what. And then there are certain qualities. Like one of the main qualities is they're all talent engineers. Most search firms would never run into them because they don't use search firms. So you wouldn't necessarily be able to even know what one would look like because they, they build, they have an entourage, they follow. The world is always trying to recruit them, meaning someone else, some other talent engineer CEO knows them outside their company. It's clearly the people inside. So if they're in big companies, they always get promoted into turnaround situations because there's very little you know, startup situations or they don't they don't put those types of leaders into organizations that are doing well. So that rings true, that that startup mentality. But the first quality that I noticed about Sam, and I'm just going to talk about Sam and the others that are like him. And Sam was at IBM and all the others that I know, many of them, about 20 percent of all the transformational CEOs I know of worked for John Akers or under him. Like Sam was, you know, a couple generations after John. 
My first CEO was a guy named John Harker, who reported directly to uh, um, to John uh, Akers. Um, and then when John became CEO, John Harker left, and I put him in a Genicom. That was my first CEO search. Ray Lane is in that vein. They're all very similar. Now, back then, they were all tall, white males, and they all kind of looked like movie stars. They're about 6'1". They look like Ken, in fact. They kind of look like Ken. Um, and uh, tall, good-looking guy, smart. Um, but the first thing I noticed about all of them, and I will just use Sam, is that they're incredibly likable. And it's genuine when you first meet them. They're just likable. They're good people. Number two is is they 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 ooze integrity. They just ooze. They wear it on their sleeve. Somehow, when you meet them, you just know this is someone I can trust. You like them. The way they talk, the way they handle themselves, just who they are. At least I can tell, and others I think can tell that. You might this might resonate with you. Um, and then uh, there are many things that happen after those two, but those first two have to be there for me. Now there are extraordinary scoundrels. There's Larry Ellison. He's been highly successful being a scoundrel. Now, I chose not to include him and his type of qualities as a transformational CEO. Now, Steve Jobs would not meet the likable quality, right? Um, he's not that. He was prickly. That's the best way I can describe Steve. Every time I met with him, he was prickly. You know? <laughs> it was a very strange interactions most of the time, but he's prickly. He came there close to him. He didn't like it if you asked him questions to get close to him. Where are these types of transformational CEOs, they get close to you almost from the minute. You just like them. They, you, know, they could be, you feel like you, they could be your best friend sometime in the future. Go out and have a cup of coffee or beer with them or whatever. Um, and uh, and so that's those are some of those qualities. We can talk about more of them, but I should probably stop here and, and uh, hear some of your thoughts. Thanks, Jeff. And, and in a sense, post-COVID, we, we now all have to be catalytic leaders. So what do you think the next five five or so years looks like for executive leadership needs? Well, I think about 70% of all of us are going to disappear, as we always have in every recession. I mean, you should take the course. Um, you know, get Richard and, and uh, uh, Canner on it, and I give an update every – we're going to probably cut this thing out, but I, I give a, an update every Friday, data, based on data. We've been watching the data since January 7th. No, yeah, since 7th, that was when they announced it. And I think on the 12th, I bought 395 masks and gloves and all kinds of other stuff because I knew what was gonna happen. And anyone who's smart enough can just look at the data. You just watch the John Hopkins coronavirus heat map. You're gonna know what's gonna happen. This flu has not gotten here yet. They're now saying that. Even Fox News is saying it. It has not gotten here. The door is almost closed in the United States. I don't know about, like, I, I knew the Great Britain had screwed up almost as bad as we did. But we've, uh, the United States with 25% of all the cases, 25% of all the deaths and 4% of all the population, we've done something horribly wrong. Even Fauci, uh, the, the primary doctor, is now saying that um, there's no possibility of a herd immunity, which is the only way you get rid of something with a vaccine. If, other than that, it just keeps going until it kills everybody that it can kill, and then whoever gets the antibodies lives. I mean, that's just basically what happens unless we all stay inside. So because more and more people will be dying, more and more people will be staying inside. Uh, as a result, uh, manufacturing is going to die. Um, a, lot of, a lot of heavy manufacturing already is. And we just haven't even seen the best, the most of the layoffs. They've been holding off on them. But there are, and, and plus, we're not even hearing the we're, you know, we're not getting any good data from companies because they're no longer uh, doing, you know, predictive 
uh, announcements of what they're going to do next quarter and, and things. They're just giving us results and they're hiding some of the results. So we're not even seeing what's actually going on. But we are in a depression. We're not even in a recession. We are in a depression with uh, you know huge unemployment getting worse. Um, because everybody that's just got rehired in restaurants are going to go home. Airlines are going to go out of business. Um, a couple of banks are going to fail. There's a, a number of oil companies failing. Um, and we're going to see that. I and mean, we're going to start seeing it. Other than that it's been falsely propped up by Trump. And he's got busted this week. You know, Trump is now being exposed by all the Republicans. <laughs> he's killed a number of, you know, he's, as a result of not wearing masks and, and not really following CDC guidelines, um, there's going to be a, a reaction, um, and it's happening right now in Texas and California where they're rolling back, um, and they're going to go to the opposite extreme. I mean, we'll see it in the next two or three weeks of having opened up way too early. They're clamping back down because all the hospital beds in Houston, for instance, are full, um, 97% happening in Arizona, Florida. And as soon as they get full and we start seeing on the news everybody you know, in, in, in makeshift beds like we did in New York, um, we're going to start seeing the economy appear the way the way it is, but there's going to be more positions put on hold, um, and uh, there's going to be significant layoffs in the search business in the industry. This is the first time I have not seen it happen by now. Um, we, we've known about this since March, um, but I and I would have predicted massive layoffs in Hydra and and Corn Ferry um, about now um, because it's going to be very hard to get those first new retainers going into the fall particularly when we're in back in lockdown and this, we're back in the flu season and, and we're, we've never left the flu season. So COVID-19 is going to change everything, but the good news is there's a new economy to pursue. Thanks, Jeff. You, you're, you're not only, uh, you've not only been an inspiration for men to partners, um, but a mentor personally uh, for me through your Jeff Christian partners offerings. Um, your tagline describes that you're the world's best practice firm. Can you describe for, for the listeners, how do you help executive search companies? Okay, um, yeah, those are two different messages. Uh, Jeff Christian Partners is the search firm. Uh, Jeff Christian uh, and Company is the holding company that has our family office and also has the jeffchristian.com online mentoring platform, which is what you guys are a part of as we start to build these online mentoring modules for the retained, the contingent to retained and the retained search market. That's how we break it up. There's about a million, about a million of each in the world, but two million total uh, recruiters and retained recruiters, uh, re retained wannabes, C-suite wannabes, and those that are in it. Um, but that, that that particular tagline um, is talking about best practices in the search firm uh, that sit above all competition. So. Whenever we've built a search firm, and, and as we were building Christian and Timbers, we just always built, uh, we, we try to give the client what they don't get. So we're always looking. We don't, we don't get up every morning and wonder where's our next search, though we always kind of do. Everybody does in search. But we really focus on what is it every day that we can give the client that they're not getting. What do they want that they're not getting? And I love asking clients about that and then building a business around it and doing it immediately. And I was always finding new solutions. So what that means is, is that we have talent-centric solutions that sit above the competition. And we know our best competition only has assessment tools. And we know assessment tools don't mean anything because a client, a search, a search client, a company, a startup, big company, they can have better assessment tools than we can because they have their own talent analytics, or at least they're on some journey to get their own talent analytics, which they can apply to a, um, uh, they can apply to a, uh, 
an assessment tool. So we, all, all you have to do, all we have to do, anybody that's a boutique, is finding solutions that we can give that sit above the competition. And it's easy to do since the competition, the big guys just are not very innovative. They, they, don't, they don't really have anybody that thinks about that. They only think about innovation as it relates to money. So I think, well, maybe like Corn Ferry can do future stuff. We can make money doing this, right? They don't think about building solutions around client needs. And as long as we, as search professionals, think about client needs, then we all get to be a best practice search firm. Thanks, Jeff. In in your seminal book, uh, you discuss how companies at the time, such as GE and, and Apple, were setting the bar for leadership. Um, who do you see as the benchmark companies today, those those attracting and, and consistently, I would say, attracting top talent? That's a very good question, uh, Jonathan. Um, everybody's become much more sophisticated. Back when I was doing all the big CEO searches, or many of them, what have you, the HPs, the WebMDs, the Excited Homes, uh, Buy.com, a bunch of different ones uh, that, that were big you know, searches at the time. Capital One, Off-Road Capital. Uh, um, I did the COO of Capital One, not the CEO, but um, they did those searches. They don't do those anymore. Google's never going to be doing an outside CEO search. IBM's never going to do another outside CEO search. HP's never going to do another outside CEO search. So that means that they're all getting better at succession planning, and they're driving succession planning down into the organization. I was talking with a company that didn't exist two years ago. They're $800 million in revenue now. They're in the um, government services business, national security space. And it's all grown through acquisition. And, and uh, the CEO is telling me that he mandates, and, but he, he also, first of all, he thinks of himself working for all of his people, same way we think about it. We don't think that anyone that we lead serves us. We serve those we lead. That's in our, that's in our, our, our culture. We try to drive it in our culture so there's no one underneath anybody and nobody above anybody because then they think they're serving us. No, as CEOs, as leaders, we must serve those we lead. And uh, so he, he has that philosophy. And then uh, he's mandating that every we're asking, requesting, because I don't think he actually mandates, but everybody has to have three um, uh, potential replacements for every job. So they're thinking about who's the internal person. They're thinking who's the external person and who's out of a competitor. Those are the three that they're asking to do. And things like that are happening more and more out there. So there are many companies that are using the science of what we call talent asset management um, and adapting it. What's in the book? The book was never written for search firms. That's the craziest thing that, you know, it's, it's, it sounds like it's, you know, the headhunters edge. It's for headhunters. It's not. It was I wrote it for CEOs and clients and HR people to think like a search person, or at least to think how I thought as a search person, so that they could use talent, use manage talent as a primary asset, as a competitive weapon, right? And so, uh, and the book is interesting you know, because it talks about uh, the talent economy. I hadn't opened it up for a while, and I didn't. I, I was surprised what the chapters were called because uh, the talent economy. I wrote it 15 years ago. People were ready to start talking about it until maybe five or seven years ago. But we are right in the talent economy, and those that create wealth have always done it through talent, through finding some form of talent grab. So I, I, I see them becoming more and more sophisticated, putting pressure on the mid-level of retained and on retained. I think retained will be gone in 20 years. You know, there'll be AI will replace us clearly, uh, and not just AI, but you know. A, a, an AI-enabled solution that is a, 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 a that replicates voice, you know, replicates conversation. We don't have the computing power 
Cooper, my middle son, my cyber student son, says there's not enough computer power on the planet yet to have, you know, uh, to, to replicate all the synopses that need to fire to have a conversation with something. But eventually there will be. And then can we just you know, get on the phone? Because that's what they do with us. We don't, we don't, we're not going to meet that many people all in person in the future. We're going to do everything. We were starting to do video 20 years ago and, and trying to avoid flying around and meet people. Um, and then we're going to have to do that with clients as well in the search business. But, um, you know, there's going to be a, a conversational bot. There are, there are those today. They're not replicating full you know, conversation, but eventually you'll be able to just talk to something and say, I need a CEO with this kind of background. It'll go into a world database of everybody. And, you know, Indeed and LinkedIn and ZipRecruiter, they're all building those. They're all building giant databases to replace us. So we've got to figure out, so there are many great companies, you know. Google is a great, I don't like Google. I don't like their leadership since they fired my friend Eric Schmidt. You know, I think the two kids that run it are not great, but they do have great talent engineering. You know, they do know the value of talent. That's all Bill Gates knew. I mean, that's all he really was, was a very highly paid recruiter. I do not know of anything that, he's, that he did other than that, than hire people. I, I don't know any strategy put together. I, and I, I kind of knew him or knew of him. I mean, I worked closely with him in the very beginnings when he hired three search firms to find as many software people and chief scientists as possible while he was doing the same thing with his internal team and himself recruiting every day. So... It's always been there in technology, talent engineering, at the core of wealth creation. But it's getting more and more sophisticated every day. You know, it's funny, Jeff, that the, uh, I'll call it the Bible of the search industry was never written for the search industry, <laughs> which is uh, quite a testament to the, uh, the the knowledge and insights that you shared in, in that as well. And speaking of books, in closing, you know, typically we ask for our speakers to provide recommendations on books or resources that inspire you beyond the one uh, that's sitting right behind you, The uh, Headhunter's Edge. Uh, which is already a great book. So what else would you recommend to our listening audience? Well, I do not read nonfiction. And in fact, um, I've only read excerpts from my book because I wrote it, right? I know what's in it. I've got a fair, I think the only thing I have is a memory for some reason. I'm not all that bright. I just have a good memory. Um, but I, uh, I don't read nonfiction. Um, uh, at least very rarely I do. So I'm really not a very good uh, person to make those recommendations. I, I like kind of uh, historical, I, I love John Adams. I love anything by McCullough about leadership. And you know, I can look back into the leadership of, of, our, of our patriots that started this com- country and then compare it to the way in which we, who we have to vote for today, which are, you know, I, I think anything having to, I, I like historical novels that are, have to do with uh, leadership. Um, that's probably what I like most. I learned quite a bit from that. And, um, you know, our, our founding fathers were all entrepreneurs. They all ran their own businesses. They all believed in your handshake was your word. And they, and they gave it when they gave it, even if they were shaking the hands of a southerner that owned a plantation. And it was, you know, uh, someone up north like a Benjamin Franklin, which I guess was an early industrialist as a publisher uh, and uh, or something. But different mentalities that they, that was their word or we never would have had a country. Um, we don't have that today. Um, so I love learning about the leaders that forge our country and other great leaders. Um, I, I love, uh, um, you know, Colleen McCullough, different McCullough, uh, who wrote um, The First Man in Rome, which is all about um, actually Gaius Maris, who is uh, Caesar's uncle. So I love all that kind of leadership stuff. So 
This has been Jeff Christian, founding father of Christian and Timbers, matchmaker to the stars of business, legend, lifelong entrepreneur. Jeff, I could not think of a better person to help us celebrate our 100th podcast. Um, for Thank you for inspiring us to create momentum and for inspiring some of the best search firms in the industry. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I hope I've given you a little bit, uh, your, your listeners, something of value. And thank you to my partners, Jonathan and Richard, for uh, doing our first ever group podcast. Uh, you guys all did well. So, And finally, thank you for the listening audience. Please join us uh, for our next, uh, next week for episode 101 of our Digital Leadership Podcast Series. Thank you, and have a great day. Thanks. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Leadership Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the discussions. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of prior podcasts, webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.